stop there. He continues on, but let's stop there. And I'm, we're going to go back through in a minute and kind of try to think this through. But I want to stop right there. My first full-time pastorate uh, was as an assistant pastor in central Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever been up near Penn State University. You get outside of, of Penn State and you get out into the country and it is really very interesting. I remember one gentleman in the church sent me a note and he says, we're so glad you and Becky are in our midst, M-I-S-T. I guess he meant to say midst, but uh, it, was, it was weird. We just laughed and laughed about that. Uh, it was an odd uh, group of people in an odd church, and I learned a lot in that ministry. They have, a, they have a slogan in Pennsylvania. You have a friend. The emphasis is on the A. You have a friend in Pennsylvania. Uh, if you're not from there, you're not from there. I'll never forget Mr. and Mrs. Hoy, uh, long-term members of the church, uh, went on a cruise. They were in their 70s. And it was the first time either of them had ever left the county in their entire lives. Uh, they were from middle of Pennsylvania, middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Well, now our church had a rival church. It, it actually was a, a part of a church split that had happened years before I got there. This rival church actually was the church we played in softball. I've mentioned this to you before. One of my early experiences in this church was playing church softball. And, uh, and we got into a fist fight with this sister church. And I was sitting there as the assistant pastor, looking at this group of people, uh, uh, really coming to, to blows with one another, thinking, what have I got myself into? What kind of church is this? It was really unusual. Well, that church was a church split. And there were a lot of people who were angry with one another and never gotten past their anger with each other. And, and so that's kind of the world in which I was living. And when I, one of the things I found out in talking to the pastor about this sister church was that one of the reasons they left was over the subject of how to pay the pastor of the church that we were in. The, the people who left had, uh, one of the reasons they left, they had a very strong opinion that the church should not pay its pastor. In fact, uh, if they did pay the pastor, it would be so little that the pastor really would barely be able to get by. I know Brother David could tell you there are churches like that uh, out there. It's, it's, it really is. You, you, if you've never seen anything like that, it's, it's terrible. Um, pastors living in really abject poverty just trying to do the ministry. But this is the attitude that they had. They would give them poverty wages, even encouraging them to sign up for government help. Now, you might wonder, does the Bible ever talk about how to pay a pastor? And actually, the answer is yes. It does in a couple of different places, actually. And one of the most comprehensive places is the text that we're in right now. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18, Paul explains the basis for a church paying its pastor. Now, here's the fun part. I just told you what this text is about. This text, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18, is about a church paying its pastor. And while you expect there to be a point to Paul's argument, at least within a section of verses that is 18 verses long, you would find that this entire text on pastoral compensation is merely a side argument to a sub-theme 
to a much larger point that Paul is making in the letter. It actually has very little to do with what Paul is actually saying, what his main point is. Now, if you want to learn how to read your Bible effectively and study the epistles effectively, you're going to need to learn to distinguish between main points that the writer is making and sub-points, sub-themes that he's using to back up his argument. In fact, I'll tell you this. One of the biggest problems that Christians have in understanding their Bible is they treat it like an encyclopedia. They almost look uh, at these as entries. In fact, if you have a study Bible, sometimes they'll put headings, in, and they're not part of the Bible. Paul didn't write those headings, okay? They'll put the headings in to kind of tell you what the paragraph is about. And, and that's nice. It's helpful in a way. But what ends up happening is people tend to read those little mini sections as individual ideas outside of a larger context. And when you do that, you misunderstand what Paul is actually, or other writers, trying to say. The result is a twisted understanding of what we call authorial intent. The intent of the author in writing that passage. Now, I don't want us to spend our time going through a bunch of passages debunking uh, misinterpretations. We could do that. We could have... Uh, um, an entire uh, summer of Sundays going through and debunking uh, misunderstood passages. What I want you to see instead is how you can do this for yourself. I want you to see how various themes in the epistles emerge and how they work together to form the argument of the author. Now, this begins, number one. Every epistle, every letter in the New Testament, this is Romans through Jude, Romans through Jude, Every one of them has at least one general theme. Let me give you some examples. The book of Romans. Pastor Joe, this is his area of expertise. What would you say the theme of Romans is? The gospel? I, I have here the righteousness of God in the gospel, but it's that's basically the theme. Galatians, I would say the theme is something like spiritual freedom in Christ. Uh, Philippians. Many of you study Philippians. What's what's the theme of Philippians? In a word, you would say what? Joy? Yeah, joy. I would say joyful uh, living in the Christian life. First Peter is hope in the gospel in times of suffering. Second Peter is living in light of the return of Jesus. First John, it would be proofs of spiritual life, uh, evidences of life. Jude, he says, I'm writing to you to defend the gospel. So, so you go through these, there are these themes that emerge. What would you say Philemon is? If you, put a, if you put a label on Philemon, what would you say it is? Forgiveness, absolutely. So 1 Corinthians has a general theme. And I think it would be something like this. Practical aspects of sanctification. Or, you might say it this way, a Christian's conduct in church life. The letter of 1 Corinthians is filled with one problem after another. And sometimes these problems are personal. Um, sometimes they're doctrinal. Sometimes they're moral. But it's just filled with Paul correcting problems. So how do you find that theme? Let me give you a little practical advice. 
This is just kind of an aside as part of the first point. Some practical advice on how to discover the theme of an epistle. The first thing I think you should do is read through it in one sitting. If you've never done that, you're missing out. If you're only reading a part of the Bible at one time, you miss out if you don't read the whole book. Now, I understand Genesis has 50 chapters. If you want to take most of your morning tomorrow, you can read the book of Genesis, right? And you can get through that. You can find the 11 Toledoths, the uh, generations, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the lineage of these different people that the writer of Genesis, Moses, is kind of bringing out. The, the line of Adam, the line of Seth, the line of Noah, uh, and so on. You can do that. But Genesis is, is, is a larger book. What about 1 John? It's five chapters. They're not really long, actually. You, you can read 1 John in just a few minutes. If you do like I do, I often use version and let the, the app read it to me. I can sit and just fill my mind with God's Word. Let, let it read to me what the Bible is saying. I, I thought it was interesting, James M. Gray, the famous preacher and theologian of the last century, he was for many years thinking, I just can't get, get a good grasp on studying my English Bible. I don't, I don't have a good feeling. This was, he was a younger man. And he met a man in his church, a layman, who told him that he had a pretty good grasp of the book of Ephesians. And it kind of piqued James M. Gray's interest. He said, well, how did you get a grasp of Ephesians? I mean, how did this happen for you? And he said, well, I took a Sunday afternoon. I went out into the woods in the middle of nowhere sat myself down, and I read through it ten times. I read it ten times. And he said, you know, about the ninth or tenth time, I kind of got a picture of what Paul's saying in the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to tell you, James M. Gray's response was, this changed his life. And I could tell you in my own experience, chunks of information are better. Read as much of it as you can in one sitting. And then you take notes of what you see. I tell you this, don't be afraid of a highlighter or an underliner. Do that um, at the beginning of the 20th century. A guy came out with a study Bible, his name was Schofield. What you call the old, old Schofield, some of you, is actually the second uh, edition of Schofield. There's an older Schofield to old, than old Schofield. And Schofield was unique because he was actually putting notes. Do you know where he got that? It was from other people that he had learned from who were underlining and making notes in their margins. And he thought, that's a really good idea. And he began doing that, and then they published those notes. And in fact, not all the notes are even from Schofield. Um, the, uh, most of the notes that deal with eschatology are from a guy named Gableline, uh, Frank Gableline's father. So you, you understand this is kind of unique and interesting. Well, it all came out of underlining. Don't be afraid of that. And make fast facts about a book. Who is the author? Who is the audience? Where did he write from? Maybe he tells you. Maybe you're going to have to go look it up. When did he write it, the letter? What is the occasion for writing it? You know, Jude says, I had a whole bunch of things I wanted to write to you about, but I've got to write to you about this. He tells you the occasion for it. What is the purpose of the letter? Uh, in, in Philemon, Paul's saying, I'm writing you because I need you to forgive Onesimus. You have the main ideas. And then underline and find key verses. You say, Pastor, that's a lot of work. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. 
Well, let me give you one last idea. Get yourself a good study Bible. If you don't have a good study Bible, invest in one. Uh, the one I like the best is Criswell Study Bible. It's actually probably not on being published any longer, but you can find it on eBay, I believe. I think I found one this week. Schofield had a study Bible. MacArthur's got a study Bible. There's the NIV. There's the ESV study Bibles that are out there. A life application Bible, those kinds of things. Grab one of those. Now, once you have a theme, then you need to know that not everything in the book will trace directly back to that theme necessarily. Because often there are sub-themes that are at work. So this is point number two. Often there are sub-themes underlying the main theme. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Chapters 1 through 6 deal with Paul responding to the tattletale, sorry, Chloe, named Chloe. <laughs> in chapter 1 and verse 11, Chloe's household had tattled on the church in Corinth. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, um, uh, here we had uh, Chloe's family says, Paul, there's big problems here in Corinth. You need to get back here. We have big trouble. There's divisions. The believers were divided doctrinally. They were divided socially. Another big problem was sexual ethics in chapters 5 through 7. But particularly in this section, he says in chapter 5, he begins, it is reported among you. He says, I've heard tell this is going on in the church. So in chapters 1 through 6, Paul is dealing with things that people had told him about the church. And these various issues gave Paul time to express some truths along those lines. In terms of divisions, he notes that the church is filled with people unworthy of God's calling to salvation. I, I mean, are you better than anybody else? Are you? Are you? you? Do you think you are? Do we think we are? We're not. But sometimes we think we are. Okay. But who does God call to salvation? The unworthy, the base, the, the poor, right? The huddled masses. In, in fact, you, you find in chapter 3, the, one of the big problems going on is carnality in the church. There's a lot of carnal people, a lot of flesh-centered people. Now you get to chapter 7, and there's a turn. Because in chapter 7, Paul is now answering questions that apparently they had written to him. So chapters 1 through 6, he's responding to what he heard from Chloe's household. In chapter 7 now, he says, concerning the thing you wrote unto me. And he's actually going to do that for about uh, 11, uh, uh, 7 through 10 into chapter 11. You find that in the major section there is chapters 8 through 10 dealing with meat offered to idols. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, unfortunately the chapter break comes at the wrong place. Chapter 11, verse 1, probably belongs to chapter 10. So chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, Paul rehearses various truths that he'd already taught them. So do you see the outline emerging? Chapters 1 through 6, Chloe's household told me this stuff, I'm talking to you about that. Chapter 7 through 11, 1, I'm talking with things you wrote to me about. Chapter 11, verse 2, now I'm telling you about things I've already told you. When I was there, when I was founding the church, I taught you these things. And you find there in chapter 12, questions about spiritual gifts. Which, by the way, then chapter 13, which is the what chapter of the Bible, is in the middle of this whole section on spiritual gifts. And it's all, all of that whole idea of love is being controlled by that section on spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 
is about what? Real important chapter. About the what? We'll talk about it at Easter time. It's about the resurrection, right? And then chapter 16, practical matters in church life and some personal matters like Paul's travel plans. That's the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, that brings me then to point number three, right? So point one, every epistle has kind of a theme. Point two, there are sub-themes underlying the main theme. Point three now, those sub-themes usually have various concepts. So within each epistle, within each letter, you have levels of information, all right? You've got a macro level, main theme information. You have middle level information. Those are the sub-themes. They usually support the main theme. And then you have personal level information, where the writer is referring to himself in a personal way. My travel plans, greetings to various people, personal problems faced in ministry life or being a Christian. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9 and ask yourself, is this macro level main theme stuff? What do you think? Is it main theme? I don't think so. Is it middle theme? Is, there a, is it talking about specifically addressing and filling out totally a sub-theme? And I would say no to that as well. I think actually what Paul is doing here <clears throat> is he is talking about some personal issues in his own life, using it to illustrate a point he's making that actually is part of a sub-theme that undergirds the main theme. So this is a pretty minor point. So what is the text teaching? Let's take a little bit of time to work through it. First of all, I think Paul is teaching that ordained ministry leadership is an office in the church. Paul argues effectively that he was an apostle like the other apostles. In verse 1, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus? Right? And he says, by the way, you want to know what my seal of my apostleship is? It's you. You, the Corinthians, you are proof that I'm an apostle. So consequently, Paul argues, if I'm an apostle, I have the right to be treated like the other apostles are treated. Okay, did you see his argument? He, he's saying, I'm an apostle, right? He's asking the question, am I not an apostle? They have to say yes. He says, if that's true, then I have the right to be treated like any other apostles treated so he says in verse 3, My answer to them to examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister or a wife? Is Peter only allowed to lead about his wife? Apparently Peter would travel and take his wife with him. He says, do, do I and Barnabas, are we the only ones who have to work? Everybody else gets to forbear working? Paul, Paul is saying... If I'm an apostle, shouldn't I be allowed to be treated like the other apostles? Okay, so he's trying to argue here, and I think he's arguing pretty effectively, that, that his apostleship is, is part of an office in the church. Now, we don't have apostles anymore, but we do have pastors and deacons. And there are things about pastors and deacons mentioned in Scripture that apply specifically to them. And I think here Paul is saying, look, ordained ministry leadership is an office in the church. That's point number one. So point number two, then, of Paul's argument is, it's God's will that ministry leaders, pastors, in this case apostles, but pastors, are compensated materially for their spiritual work. And Paul makes a whole bunch of logical arguments supporting his position. For example, verse 7. Who goes to war and has to pay himself to do it? Right? Does anybody do that? 
You join the military, don't they generally pay you to, to get into harm's way? Or if you went out in your backyard and you spent the time to dig in this Carolina clay, which is hard work, you dug it all up and you then put in uh, the nice, beautiful soil and you planted a vineyard or an orchard in your yard, would you expect the town to come by and say, you can't eat any of the grapes and you can't eat any of the apples? Of course you can eat those apples. You plant it. It's in your yard. What about the oxen? And here he actually quotes the Old Testament law because he says, uh, Moses, he had the right. Do you see here? He, he said, don't muzzle the ox. So here's the poor ox and he's working his way through the fields, right? And you're gathering up the grain. It's part of the way of reaping the harvest. He said, let some of the grain go ahead and fall on the ground. So the, mock, the ox has something to eat. And that's out of Old Testament law. He's, he's making this argument. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I skipped back in verse 7. What about the flock? You have your flock. Don't you get the milk from the flock? Of course you do. You talk about uh, people who sow spiritual things. Can't you reap carnal things? See, this is the point he's trying to make. If, if the guy goes to war and people pay him, you plant your vineyard, you get to eat your own vineyard, the food of your vineyard. You got your flock, you get to eat, take the milk from the flock. If you actually are like an ox and you get to eat the stuff, that's all material things. That's money. That's food. That's material things. So then he says, okay, all right. If I have sown, like I'm a farmer, planting a seed, spiritual things, is it really a great thing that I'm going to reap from you carnal, material things? If others be partakers of the power over you, who do you think he's talking about there? If other people do this, who do you think he's talking about? That's probably Peter again. You, you paid Peter when he came to see you. Why wouldn't you pay me? Don't I have this power? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel. Do you not know that they which minister about the holy things live of the things of the temple? He goes all the way back to the Old Testament again. And you know those priests? They didn't have fields. Right? They didn't get lands. All, all the tribes come in and, and they get lands. And, and one son gets two tribes, or gets two, has two tribes, and they get two different apportionment of land. But one son, Levi, his offspring, his family, his line, they don't get any land. They get cities. But they are actually, listen, how do they get their stuff? People bring their food as sacrifice to God. And what happens? They get to eat of that food. You say, how could you live on that? Well, I can tell you this. Remember Eli? He was really heavy. So obviously it works. This system works. He had plenty of food to eat. Too much food. I think he was probably diabetic. Uh, he couldn't see. Anyway, so here Paul's saying, these people get to eat of the temple. Why couldn't I eat of the temple? They that wait on the altar are partakers with the altar. So he concludes in verse 14, God has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live the gospel. What is he saying there? What does he say? Look at the text. Verse 14, what do you think it means? If he's saying, after all this argument I've been making, people who preach the gospel ought to do what? They ought to be able to live, materially live, not spiritually live, materially live, because of their spiritual work. Spiritual work should result in material gain. Material gain in the sense of being able to live. So, I would say then that ordained leadership has 
the right to be compensated materially for their work. Right? So Paul says, I'm part, I'm in an office. I should be compensated for my work. But then he concludes with this idea. Even though ordained leadership in office should be compensated for their work, he says, I'm going to prioritize. This is point number three. Ordained leadership should prioritize gospel ministry instead of financial gain. What's more important to Paul? Making money or planting those churches? Planting those churches. If he gets paid to him, that's superfluous. He, he didn't want to go hungry. He didn't want to have tattered clothes. But, but he says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. This is so much more important to him. So Paul has limited his rights out of concern that others might think he served God for money. Look at verse 12. If others be partakers of the power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. I, I have the power to say you need to pay me, but I have not used this power. Instead, I suffer all things, lest we, that's he and his ministry team, should hinder the gospel of Christ. Corinth is a rich city. Paul goes in, plants a church in Corinth, and what do you think happens? People are going to say to him, oh, you're doing it for the money. You went to Corinth because you're going to get paid. You're going to make a lot of cash. This is going to be great. And Paul says, listen, I'm going to limit my rights out of concern that others might think you're, I'm doing it for the money. In fact, his whole focus was on gospel ministry. Verse 15, I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done to me. I'm not telling you all this so that you'll go, oh, we should have paid Paul. When Dave Barba, my friend Dave, I mentioned him this morning in Claudia, when they went and planted a church in, in outside of Nashville, Tennessee, he pastored it for about 10 years. He was going to go back into evangelistic ministries. He told me, he said, uh, we sat down, I sat down with the men of the church and said, we've got to come up with a compensation package for the new pastor. They had hired uh, a youth pastor with the intention of him becoming the senior pastor, and that, that's kind of what they did. They said, we need a compensation package. So they went and got some books on how to do this, and they started working through all this. And they came to a number that was a lot higher than what they had paid him. And the men of the church said, we really underpaid you, Pastor. We owe you money. He said, no, no, it's okay. That wasn't his priority. That wasn't what he was focused on. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. It would be better for me to die than anyone should make my glory void. I'm all about the gospel. It's not about the money. I don't want the money. The money's fine. It's great to have. It lets you do things, but that's not my issue. That's not what I'm headed, he says. What is my reward then, verse 18? That when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge so that I may abuse, not abuse my power in the gospel. It's not that he didn't have the right to be paid. He said, I'm going to forego that right. And no one's going to be able to take away from me this glory. You can't say I did it for the money because you didn't pay me and I didn't ask you to pay me. And if you tried to pay me, I wouldn't take it. I worked a secular job. Now, what's the main theme of 1 Corinthians? On the macro level, practical aspects of sanctification or conduct in church life. Okay. You get to chapters 8 through 10, dealing with meat offered idols. I'm just going to give it to you. You probably don't know offhand, most of you. This sub-theme is of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is a part of learning to live the Christian life, especially conduct in church life. Some of you think 
Uh, one thing is really important. You make it super important. Others of you think it's not very important. And then you end up interacting with each other. Right? Sometimes that causes conflict. It shouldn't, but sometimes it does. Paul now is talking about Christian liberty. That's a sub-theme of his main theme. Christian liberty is connected to personal sanctification and conduct in church life. But on a personal level, Paul is explaining his sub-theme by saying this, I had the liberty to be paid for my work. So Paul is connecting Christian liberty, his Christian liberty to be paid, to the sub-theme of Christian liberty and conduct in church life. However, he refused payment, so no one could uh, take away from him and misunderstand, and he would harm his testimony. So the principle that emerges, if you, if you kind of drill down, the principle that emerges is this. Restricting my liberty in Christ is vital if gospel issues are at stake. That's what Paul's actually teaching. And he's using his personal example of refusing pain uh, to, to try to teach this idea. So you've got this big theme, conduct in church life as personal sanctification, Christian growth. You've got the sub-theme of Christian liberty. Now Paul is saying, this is my example. I, could, I had the liberty to be paid. I set it aside. I restricted it. I guarded it so that I could actually show you something very important. When gospel issues are at stake, it is crucial that the gospel is first. Now, what do you do with information like this? Let me give you some ideas. Number one, the main point is still the main point. So the main point of 1 Corinthians, the main point has to do with sanctification, church life, that kind of thing. The sub-point, the sub-theme is, is really important too. Freedom in Christ needs to be guarded, even restricted by wise living. Do you know people... Pastors, some scholars, theologians come to this text and they make it mean the exact opposite of what it means. They say, you are free in Christ. They go to Galatians and they say, you have freedom in Christ. And it's all about your freedom. Paul's actually warning people. Don't let your freedom lead you to evil. Don't let your freedom harm other people. If you go back to chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul actually has already stated his principle. Take heed lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them who are weak. Here's a baby Christian just trying to get through the Christian life. And here you are exercising your Christian liberty. And all of this whole argument about pastors being paid all came back to say, Paul says, I had the right to be paid. I didn't do it because I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want to hurt the gospel. Now, that applies in a whole bunch of ways. Let me give you some applications. What about an alcoholic brother? Got a brother, comes in parts of our church. We find out poor guy struggling with alcoholism. He's had a struggle like this his whole life, uh, adult life. What do we do about a situation like that? Well, I like to drink root beer. I, I joke with pastor friends. I go around at our fellowship down in Florida, and I drink either root beer or ginger ale. I don't know why. Those are the ones I like the best. But I put my finger over the root and just kind of hold, walk around with my can, you know. Or, or with ginger ale, I put my finger over the ginger. And those guys, they just laugh, you know, because they know I'm joking. Right? But would I do that with a brother who's struggling with alcoholism? 
I, I sometimes like root beer that comes in little brown bottles. My, my poor father-in-law here, we, I played a joke on him a few years ago. Do you remember this? You probably do. We were, we were over at Southern Seasons over in Chapel Hill. And he was talking. We were talking about something, and he's not paying attention. And I bought myself a Blenheim's ginger ale. It comes in kind of a bottle shaped kind of like beer. And I, I grabbed that bottle, and the, and the lady, as we're checking out, he's still talking, and I'm doing my thing, checking out uh, Southern Seasons. They're, they're closed now. They're not there anymore. I'm checking out, and uh, they give you a brown paper bag. And I got my brown paper bag. The lady put my bottle in my brown paper bag, and I took it out. And they had some tables set out, and I went out and sat down at the table, and I took my bottle out of the bag, and I popped the top off, and I put my bottle back in the bag, and I began shaping it around the bottle. And, and about halfway through doing that, he, he, he just stopped in the middle of the conference. Wait, what are you doing? <laughs> I took a big drink out of my cup. Now, that's funny because he doesn't have any problem with alcoholism. I would never do that around a person who did, ever, right? That's a pretty simple thing. It's almost common sense, right? But you'd never do that around a person who's struggling with alcoholism. I wouldn't even drink from a bottle that looked like alcohol around a person who struggled with alcoholism. I wouldn't put my water in a, in a fluted cup with a stem. I wouldn't do that. Get my picture taken, I'm on Facebook, and people are going, well, what's in that glass? I'm not going to do that. Let me give you another example. Maybe we got a guy here who's struggling with gambling, blowing all his money. Well, I like to vacation at cheap locations. The cheaper, the better. It's a vacation, and I don't have to pay a whole lot, especially if it's nice. I like to go there. Do you know one of the cheapest places you can go in the world is? Las Vegas, Nevada. Now... I don't gamble, I don't drink, and I'm going to go to bed before really the, the, the world comes alive in Las Vegas, okay? And I'm going to be up. I'm up when they're asleep, and they're asleep when I'm up. So it, we li it's great. It's, it's pretty empty, okay? Now, I, I don't really like Las Vegas. I've been there a few times. I don't really ever intend to go back, frankly. But it's pretty inexpensive. How would I approach traveling to Nevada, or even letting this brother know, I'm headed to Las Vegas. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell him about that. Certainly not going to take him along. What about a brother who's lazy? Won't work. Won't get a job. Or he gets a job and keeps losing a job because he won't apply himself. Well, I like to play golf with my friends. It's more fun than playing by yourself. You think I would encourage a guy like that to come golfing with me if it conflicts with his work schedule? Call him on the phone. Hey, don't worry about work. Let's go play golf. Come on, this will be fun. Would you do that? And the answer is no. Why wouldn't you do any of those things? Because you're not going to do that. All of those things are fine. There is nothing sinful about traveling to Las Vegas, Nevada. There is nothing sinful about drinking Blenheim ginger ale. There is absolutely nothing sinful about going to play golf. But I'm not going to do those things with those people in those situations because I don't want to cause them to have spiritual problems. Do you see it? That's the principle that's emerging. Paul's actually restricting his liberty because he wants to help other people. And that's a sub-theme in Christian liberty that supports the main theme of how you live life with other believers. In fact, Paul's main point then in chapter 8, verse 13, after he talked about in verse, remember in verse 9, Take heed, lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. Here's what he said. 
If meat makes my brother to offend, that is, it offends his conscience. It leads him to sin against his conscience. I will eat no flesh as the world stands. I will not eat meat of any kind. I'm becoming, I'm instant vegetarian if I'm around this guy. Why? Because I don't want to hurt him. I, do you not have the right to eat meat? Is there anything wrong with eating a steak? Is there something wrong with that? The answer is no, by the way. This is enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. It actually says it in the Bible. So if you're a vegan and you disagree, I'm, I'm sorry. Script, this is what Scripture actually says. But I may forego that right if it hurts someone else spiritually. Apparently in Paul's time, there were people who had established guilds for the purpose of getting paid. Paul didn't want people to think he was doing that, so he refused money from the churches being planted. And by the way, if you think Paul was crazy, no, he would accept money from churches he had already planted. So here he is planting a church while people from other church plants that he had were sending him money so that the people he's around would not think he's doing it for the money. All of that restricting his liberty so that it doesn't hurt the gospel. So here's some ideas then. Make the main point the main thing. Number two, don't discount secondary information. The principle of pastoral compensation is still valid. It's still inscripturated. It's just not the main point. It's a secondary point. Don't discount the secondary point. Just don't make it the main point. And then number three, that leads us to that. Don't transform secondary ideas into main points, which is, by the way, a major problem in fundamental churches. And that's why we're going to look in a couple of weeks at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The secondary point is not the main point. And the moment we make a secondary point the main point, we destroy authorial intent. This is what happens most often when we try to proof text. That's what you're reading along in the devotion book, and the guy puts a verse, in the, and most people don't ever look it up. I do, I do, I look them all up, especially when my students do it. I'm reading my, my if I have a student who puts a verse there, I'm going to look up that verse, and he had better have gotten it right, or I'm going to make a little note. You got it all wrong. I'll still give him an A, but, you, you know, it's okay. It's okay. I'm an easy grader. It can also happen when we're looking for evidence to support a particular position or conviction. I've got a conviction that this is what we ought to do. It's got to be here somewhere. <laughs> Come on, help me find it. I need a verse on, and we find it. And then we end up making the secondary point the main point. And when you do that, you miss out on what God is really trying to teach you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father.